Welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. Hi, I'm John Yarbrough. I'm the Vice President of Content and Communications for Alert Media. We are an emergency communications software provider, and I'm excited to share some of how we work together on our hybrid team. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the Remote Work Tribe podcast, John. To get started, can you maybe talk a little bit about the most exciting thing that you're up to these days? Well, every day is exciting for us. And I think part of that is because I really am passionate about what our company does. And, you know, without going too far in the weeds, Alert Media's core mission is to help companies keep their people and businesses safe during emergencies and other critical events. So you can think about the unpleasantries that we see in news media. That is what we're focused on helping companies navigate. And it's really about helping them communicate with their impacted people that may be in harm's way or maybe are having their work disrupted to try to get them back to productive as quickly as we can. Um, so I think for probably a lot of the folks listening to this podcast, as well as any of us have ever experienced a crisis event, it's really easy to feel passionate about helping people on what for many is the worst day of their work life. Uh, you know, it's, it's not um, easy to be the person accountable for you know, getting everybody in a, a safer environment. And so we take a lot of uh, pride in, in what we can do, our small part in helping them understand best practices and learning from our other customers. So um, we we really enjoy um, as a content and communications team, the work that we get to do to really serve as a resource and help connect communities and help our clients tap into things that can really help them um, when, you know, stress is running a little high and, and things are urgent. So um, what that looks like day to day are, you know, things like our podcast and our, our newsletter and a lot of our educational content that's really, you know, meant to be a value add in addition to, you know, of course, their subscription to have access to our product. Yeah, absolutely. You guys are like really doing like, like mission critical work. Um, can you maybe speak a little bit to what your team structure is like within kind of the comms and content team? Yeah, happy to. Uh, I think the structure that we have is more common now than it was when I started my career. So in uh, the simplest sense, we're a combined in-house content and communications function. So we more or less operate as a shared service supporting not just all marketing teams, but really the entire organization. Um, and, you know, in terms of the day-to-day, -day, a lot of that is what you would expect, typical copywriting and content development, both to serve our customers as well as to support sales and marketing campaigns. But we also do quite a bit to help our executive team um, with content that they want to develop, either, you know, what often is referred to as thought leadership, helping them find their voice or, or really just help them get pen to page. Um, there's a lot of things that, from my vantage point, communications professionals can do um, just to make sure that the stories that are important to us as an organization and that we want to share uh, both internally as well as externally are told in a way that's going to be memorable and impactful. Um, so on a team structure basis, we are in organized into four groups under that blended marketing communications content umbrella. Uh, we have an external communications team, which is focused on things like PR and analyst relations and social media. We have a long form team, which is focused on our blog, our newsletter, um, and longer form resources for our customers and prospects. 
We have a team of copywriters, which focus a lot on email. They, they do a lot of short form writing in support of our sales organization. And then we have a production team, which is maybe a little less traditional, but our production team is accountable for things like webinars and our podcast, video scripts, and other things that don't fit as neatly in one of the other three buckets. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like you have a really efficient structure to be able to kind of help out everyone in the organization and not just the marketing team. Can you speak a little bit to how you guys kind of make sure you're all on the same page and collaborating and moving in the same direction? That is an ongoing challenge for all of us all the time, isn't it? Uh, One of the things as a hybrid team, and I didn't really touch on this yet, but um, our organization as recently as March of 2020, when of course the whole world was disrupted due to the pandemic, um, was you know, really a more of an in-office culture. We, at the time, the organization was, you know, under 175 employees. Most of the employees, the vast majority were living in Austin, Texas, and most people came into a physical office, uh, maybe not daily, but certainly a majority of the time. And when COVID disrupted that in-office work environment, you know, the, uh, the original reaction, the initial reaction rather was one of, you know, uncertainty and and a little trepidation that maybe this is not going to work. Maybe this culture that we've, we've created was not going to translate. But I think we found uh, out very quickly and, you know, and and a really positive surprise is that, you know, the culture itself was resilient. And even though we couldn't be together physically, the culture could translate to more digital interaction and the way that people invested time and energy and their colleagues, making sure that we were communicating about our priorities and things we were struggling with and asking for support and ideas. Um, you know, it's a little different. It's not a hallway conversation or, you know, what people call the, the water cooler anymore, but um, you know, tools like Slack and and you know email and some of our project management tools still facilitate that that type of collaboration. And so we've really leaned into that. And you know, fast forward a little bit now, you know, our, our company is almost three times the size. We're you know pushing on 500 employees, and you know, a large uh, percentage of that are fully remote. Even our Austin-based team is much more distributed, not nearly as much of an in-office culture, even though we do have an amazing, you know, group of people that do come in regularly. Um, We've really tried to to just stay focused on those key tenants that have always served us well, which is over-communicating, making sure that, you know, even within marketing, we're not making any assumptions that people understand their colleagues' priorities. So we talk about that regularly. We have a weekly stand-up for the entire marketing team where the sole purpose of the meeting is to talk about what our objectives are for that week. We, we try to stay very focused on those next critical business days, what we're trying to do, um, which helps us really have focus on you know where we have to make hard decisions on deprioritizing things that maybe are nice to have in, in favor of you know making sure we take care of the most important stuff and get it across the finish line. And I think that you know is is really uh, you know it may seem simple. Yes, you know everyone's used to doing standups and meetings, but I think for us it's it's really about stacking hands on a, a set of common goals and objectives. And you know while each marketing function has a slightly different focus area, um, everybody walks away understanding what their colleagues are going to be spending the vast majority of their time on, and you know that that just gives clarity for all that we're not going to be competing for resources or potentially pulling the team in separate directions. Okay, I have so many follow up questions from what you just shared there. 
Um, sure. Going back to like, you know, March of 2020 and when basically the entire world went remote due to kind of the really the beginning of the pandemic. Um, there's a lot of it, you know, there's probably, there's a lot of anxiety, you know, and around that, how did you as a leader, knowing that you were originally like pretty much a very, very in-person culture, make those initial, like those early adjustments in March, April and May and June to working now completely from home in an environment that could be very stressful, anxiety producing, and maybe even some of your team members, you know, having to deal with like their family members now at home and homeschooling as well as, you know, or virtual schooling, Zoom schooling, as well as working remotely and all that stuff. Can you maybe speak to a little bit of like what you kind of did in those first three months? I'd be happy to. And I, I will also uh, clarify that I actually joined Alert Media a few months after those very early critical days, but a lot of those challenges were applicable at my uh, in my past role uh, at another similarly sized company that had the same transition. So I'll, I'll steal some of those experiences from a, a prior role as well as speak to what it was like when I joined Alert Media a couple months later. Um, first, you know, on the people side, I think if anything for me, you know, I have learned as a professional that when there's a true crisis, there are some people that lean into the work and there are some people that lean into everything that's outside of work for peace and comfort and stability. And I think that really the the truly special cultures and companies are the people that are, are the, the, the organizations that are able to blend those two. And what I mean by that is, you know, for I'll, I'll use my own personal experiences. I uh, really struggle to move to a fully remote environment. While I'm fortunate to have a, a space in my home where it was relatively easy logistically for me to continue to work. I have small children in the house, but they uh, are able to be in a separate area. So I, do, I wasn't dealing with what a lot of people were, which was you know setting up a laptop on a, on a card table and, and really struggling to even do their job with you know free of distractions in a way that even closely resembled what it was like being in the office. Mine, mine were more about work preference and, um, you know, knowing you, Jessica, you'll, you'll, you'll probably laugh as I say this. I, I really love being with people. I feed off the energy of having a colleague next to me that I can just talk to throughout the day, bounce ideas, you know, debate, uh, you know, different approaches. It, it really is something that feeds me as a professional and as a creative. So almost overnight, I felt like something that was has always worked so well for me was taken and it was out of my control. So beyond all the existential fears that we were all experiencing at that time around our own safety, our own wellness, our fear of losing loved ones and friends and, and you know, just a lot of unknown um, I also felt like part of my work identity was was taken from me and, and it was hard to navigate. And I, I, in talking to colleagues, realized very quickly that some were having the same experience I were, was. And then, you know, in, in kind of an ironic, hilarious sense, others were having the a complete polar opposite. They were dealing with the existential crisis. They were they were struggling with the, the fear and uncertainty about the pandemic itself, but they really were loving the new flexibility they got in their home life, the ability to work much more flexible hours, the ability to have more uh, distraction-free time, you know, you know, not having people just walk up to their desk throughout the day. And 
you know, in short, what I learned from that is really an appreciation that work styles are so varied. And as leaders, we absolutely have to understand where our people are as it relates to what makes them at their best. If we as leaders are not asking questions, hey, what is an ideal work environment look like to you? What do you need in order to feel like your cup is full in terms of your, your creativity, your productivity, uh, interactions with colleagues? If we're not collaborative in that sense, in, in some respects, I feel like we failed, right? Um, you know, without going too far on, you know, leader, leadership approach or leadership philosophies, um, I've had the benefit of working for some amazing servant leader managers. And I think to a person, all of them have made work about me, not their own preferences. And I think that was a kind of a key learning in those early weeks of COVID was um, I had figured out what worked best for me, but I had not invested enough in figuring out what worked the best for my team. And, and I've really tried to hold on to that, especially as we've started to come back to, you know, this new normal, whatever this next phase is where, you know, people are going to be spending maybe more time in offices, maybe not as it was, but um, we, we need to be protective of the things that have worked well for us during this period where everybody was home and there was an, an understanding that that was going to be the best environment for a large percentage of the workforce. Absolutely. You mentioned something really interesting there, which was kind of you personally uh, struggling with adjusting to now working from home, which was not really, you know, what you would have ever said is like your preferred preference. What were some of those adjustments that you made to make that experience in 2020 a little bit, you know, I don't want to say easier, but like to help you kind of stay productive and show up as a leader? I think it was a lot of trial and experimentation, first and foremost. You hit the nail on the head there. One thing that I uh, gave myself permission to do is to stop making excuses about things in my life that were out of balance that I always blamed work for. So an example of that, which I'm sure others will relate to, is uh, I struggle with my hours and putting in hours at work and my energy levels being so low that I no longer in the evening wanted to spend time, you know, working out or, or making investments in myself, whether it was reading or extracurricular activities or any type of hobby. And, and it was an easy scapegoat to say, well, I'm working so hard, I just can't make time. And then when you now all of a sudden have an abundance of time, you know, for, for many of us, we got an hour or more back that we were previously spending in cars commuting. Uh, there were fewer meetings. I don't know if that was true for, for all. It certainly was for me. Um, there was a real embrace, uh, maybe not, uh, not right away, but as, you know, some of the virtual coffees and happy hours fell out of favor, I found myself with more time during the day. And so, I, you know, I really leaned into the opportunity of I'm going to take care of myself and see how that actually also improves my experience with work, my relationship with work. Um, and, and I loved it. And, you know, it was simple things like I'm going to take a walk while I'm on a call and know that that's okay because many of my colleagues are tired of sharing their face on Zoom video calls all day. I started booking intentionally downtime during the day for things like non-work related reading, um, things that were 
you know, person, you know, either personal interest or that tangentially related to my role that were on a reading list, making time purposefully to catch up and, you know, really try to give myself new inputs um, to, you know, kind of tap back into creativity, movement, huge believer in just movement, having kind of correlated positive impact on creativity and productivity. So, you know, making time in the morning instead of hustling to get a coffee and get on, you know, and on the road, starting a commute, you know, getting on the treadmill, going for a quick run around my neighborhood. So all things that are probably, you know, uh, very normal and, and, and should be typical experiences, but I, I had previously sacrifice some of those in service of, you know, putting in more hours at work. And I think that I realized very quickly that I can, I can do both. Um, and I would say, even as I have started going back into an office more regularly, I have found that there's time for both. Um, and, and it really is about prioritizing it and making sure that, you know, you're, you're taking care of self in addition to work self, which sometimes can be out of alignment. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I feel like that's definitely a challenge that so many face and, you know, many still do face, but like, it sounds like, you know, getting that, you know, time in 2020 was able to kind of help you kind of balance things in a, a little bit better way. Um, you asked us something a little bit earlier in the conversation about how some of your team absolutely loved being able to now officially be able to work from home all the time um, in 2020 and others, you know, like yourself maybe had a little bit of a harder time trans transitioning to that. Um, from those experiences, like what are some of the kind of the takeaways that you learned and are now in kind of incorporating now that you do have this hybrid team where people are, you know, working, some are working remotely, some are much more in the office. Um, can you speak to some of those kind of key takeaways and how you've been able to kind of adjust and show up as a leader? I think one thing that I was newer for me, but was something that I gravitated to very quickly as I was more intentional in understanding work preferences for those on my team was figuring out how to maximize time together while also not having, you know, perhaps less critical meetings, you know, and I'm talking about the 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 synchronous communication, right? The stuff that we all show up for, you know, often with ambiguity around our participation or why we're even there, right? So everybody's been in the the low value meeting, the you know the the versions of this could have been an email, um, and I you know I take a lot of ownership of you know as part of my role, and you know I think this is true as you you know hire folks and you move up any type of corporate hierarchy is you know there are more people that are going to show up to something simply because they were asked right whether they feel as though hey my boss told me i need to go to this so i'm going to i'm going to accept the meeting invite or it's it's um you know as a courtesy so where i'm going with that is it, it became clear to me in in a matter of weeks during the pandemic as you know i saw some people gravitating to remote work and others you know like myself that were newer to it that were learning their way, finding their way that uh, we we could have a call together, quickly talk through everyone's priorities, stay super, super aligned, 
share a laugh, you know, talk through challenges, give everyone time to speak and be seen, and then also divvy up the work and go on about our day and nothing was sacrificed. So we were just as productive, if not more so. It still felt like we were connected. We were using the tools available to us, project management, right? Uh, you know, we use Write currently, use a handful of tools historically. Um, and then, you know, combination of Teams and Slack, depending on which job I was at, uh, we 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 were able to maintain this culture and this togetherness with a lot less drag on people's productivity. And I think that, you know, my my conviction today as we talk is that's what an ideal work environment is. Every single person feeling some level of autonomy over their day to day. And I and I define that as what your work hours are, as well as having some autonomy over your schedule, being able to decline meetings that are not relevant without feeling like you've missed anything critical, um, while also having time together so that people have personal relationships, that kind of sweat equity where you know you, you feel like you can pick up the phone or, or text or Slack a colleague and say, hey, can I tap into your brain to help solve this problem? Um, there's just a lot of waste, I think, in organizations if you're not intentional about that, because you know, for better, for worse, people come to work expecting that someone's going to tell them, hey, you need to be here nine to five. And these are the six meetings you have to be in today. And there's never an opportunity to say, I don't agree. You know, I, I have a different view of what necessary looks like. So um, that was a long winded way of saying, I think it really starts with the individual. If, if people tell you as a leader, hey, what would really make me feel at my best is not having meetings first thing in the day or maybe having shorter time on meetings so I can spend more time with blue, blue sky thinking and creating and perfecting my craft. Why, why would we inhibit that? Why would we be rigid in our approach to what work looks like day to day? Um, so not always easy. We have to, you know, still solve for some times where it does require bringing people together. But um, often I have found that you can get by with having fewer people on calls. You can get by with documenting things that, you know, whether it's meeting notes or recording, um, you know, uh, brainstorms and, and, you know, really just give people time back. And I think it's, you know, again, as a manager, one of the greatest gifts is to give people back time um, that they otherwise would have sat on a call expending energy on something that was not uh, particularly useful to them. Yeah, absolutely. And do you find like with the people on your team that you're directly managing um, that like maybe some of the people who are maybe the people who are the most likely to be a little bit less likely to want to go to the meetings are the ones who are directly kind of being the creators or the copywriters, the video editors, people like that, or who in your like experience, like even just generally, do you notice any transverses of people who maybe thrive by having a lot more meetings and a lot more in-person live jam sessions versus the folks who maybe want to communicate a little bit more asynchronously through, through Slack and email and tools like Loom. It's it's so interesting that you asked that, Jessica, because I would say at one point in my career, I might have said it's as simple as, you know, not to, uh, this is going to sound a little reductive, but in many organizations, you can kind of split a population between those who are doing work, creating assets, et cetera, and those who are requesting it, right? And boy, are there some interesting relationship dynamics when you think about it in terms of those buckets of people. I think that today, I, I don't know that it's as clean of a division of 
you know, between those who are doing strategy and those who are executing, if you want to think about it that way, I think it has more to do with personality type. And one of my uh, favorite things uh, is, and, and, you know, this is where the personal bleeds into the professional is um, my partner, my my spouse is an introvert and she married an extrovert, which is a pretty, pretty typical arrangement, I guess, not, not uncommon. Um, but in being married for a number of years, I've learned that it can be so exhausting for someone that is an introvert to spend an hour chit-chatting with colleagues, right? Like that is truly the, you know, something that Exp they're expending a lot of energy. If you think about like you're you're starting a day with your cup full, you know that's a you know spending sixty minutes on a brainstorm with a bunch of people where you're trying to negotiate small windows to weigh in with an idea. It's just exhausting. So I don't know that it's so much about seniority or role as much as it is about people's uh, comfort level in in that environment. Um, I also think learning styles has a big has a big influence over it as well. Um, you know, my so I, I have always found it easier to express myself verbally. There are people on my team that I would love to have the floor to share their ideas verbally, but often I know that they're going to submit the amazing ideas in writing after. It's going to come. It's just going to be after. And again, I don't know that there's anything wrong with that, right? If somebody needs to absorb and not contribute. Uh, and be put on the spot if that's not where they feel comfortable. Is there anything lost if they don't? You know, it, you know. Again, and I think as as leaders, as managers, striking that balance between having a a a time and a space where everyone can share ideas and feel heard and seen, um, that's really important. But also acknowledging that what may feel natural to me is not natural for all. Um, so. You know, again, I think for me, what's important is that people are made to feel that their ideas matter. And if you're in a, you know, you know, whether it's a, a first time, you know, entry level marketing role, or if you're in a, you know, a, a uh, content role that is, you know, the vast majority of your time is executing on briefs and creating content um, to do so without ever having the opportunity to influence. I just don't think that's very rewarding. Um, and, and I think that that is another part of our jobs as leaders is to make sure that everyone feels like they can influence not just the 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 words that end up on the page, but the the rationale, the strategy that informs the reason to do that in the first place, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. You brought up such an amazing point, which is not everybody, like when you're in a meeting and a brainstorming meeting, not everyone is going to feel comfortable speaking up and sharing their opinion on the spot. Um, and it's so extremely common for maybe the loudest person in the room um, or the loudest, most confident person in the room to kind of almost, I don't want to say like overshadow a meeting, um, but kind of get their ideas across a little bit more than, you know, people who might be more introverted and quiet and maybe want to take, you know, 30 minutes or an hour to process it and then submit their idea. How do you as a leader make sure that like, A, everyone in your team feels heard? Um, and B, that, you know, maybe it, you know, one or two people aren't monopolizing all of the ideas or all of the meeting time. On making people feel comfortable, I'd say, I only know what has worked for me. And I would be the first to admit that my approach may not be 
the right approach for all. Uh, but if my team was here on this call today, what they'd tell you is I lean heavily into the dad, nerdy, dorky stereotype and self-deprecating humor. Um, one of the things that has served me well as uh, being loud, proud, bad ideas guy, and by that I mean in a brainstorm environment, in a conversation with large groups, I think it's appropriate for senior leaders to lighten the mood and be the first to contribute, perhaps an imperfect idea, perhaps a terrible idea, um, which in my experience invites more of a free flow of ideation behind it. And, you know, again, you know, it's just kind of simple human psychology. If you don't feel safe and secure, at that foundational level that this is a place where I can be wrong, I can ask a silly question, I can contribute a thing that's half-baked. Um, we're not gonna, it's unfair to ask that of our teams. If we're not willing to look a little silly at times, then no one is going to feel comfortable sharing things that they don't feel 100% slam dunk that's been fully vetted, et cetera. So that's, that's one way that I've approached comfort is lighten the mood, share a silly joke, take the initiative to, you know, let people know it's going to be okay. And that's, you know, part of our job as creatives is to throw out 99 bad ideas in pursuit of the one, a great idea. So that's one piece in terms of creating an equitable environment where all voices are heard. You know, I really continue to work on that. Um, you know, one, I think that privilege is, uh, something all of us need to be mindful of in our own lived experiences where, you know, colleagues, especially in an environment like ours today at Alert Media, where we really value diversity and equity and inclusion and take it very seriously. Like we we all come from different backgrounds and not everyone has been in a corporate environment where their voice has been valued. So we need to put voice to that. We need to recognize that and we need to not treat it as a as a uh, sort of known value, we it needs to be an explicit value that's it's constantly reinforced. Um, I think gender dynamics are also something that in my career I've uh, had the great privilege of working for some incredible female leaders and had some incredibly strong women that as my peers and on my teams. And one of the things that has helped me there is a you know white straight male that comes from you know stereotypical position of privilege is tell me when i get it wrong and really listen to the feedback and um again you know no it's such a cliche to say feedback is a gift but when you give people that you have built relationships with permission to tell you that you have fallen short there's real growth and learning um truth i mean i could go on and on and i could speak the you know for an hour or more just on those moments where i have fallen short but it's helped me get better um, so, you know, today, you know, with, you know, gosh, 15 years of management experience working on big teams and smaller teams, um, I, I've learned some things that tend to translate well, right? Making a point to acknowledge every person in a meeting by name and give them an opportunity to, to contribute if they so choose. Um, giving people clarity about their role in advance of meetings or what the meeting is about is another great thing just to give folks that need more time to process and don't want to be made to be, you know, put put on the spot with the, you know, magnifying glass on them, so to speak. Um, there, there are all kinds of things that we can do to help people feel more comfortable and appreciated and acknowledged 
Um, and then the other thing I'd say for those on, on larger teams is make sure you've got lieutenants, make sure that you've got peers that can help you reinforce values on your team. So we ask the question, right? Was this a good use of your time? Yes, no. How can we be better moving forward? Please take ownership of the identity of our team. Because, you know, my, my greatest fear as a leader is that I create a team in my image, but not in the image of the, you know, other dozen people that are working on it. It's never about me. It's about us. We go, we win and lose together. So if you're not asking for feedback and really continually checking in with folks to make sure that they share the same values as you, they view the work environment the same way as you, there's probably a great likelihood that you have blind spots and areas where you could get better. Oh man, there's so much goodness in that, that I could probably talk about this for an hour or more. Um, you said something like really, really important about making sure it's like not about as a leader, it's not about you, it's about the team um, and really kind of showing up for and doing what's in the best interest of everyone on the team. Um, and you also said something there about kind of privilege. Um, and I'm kind of reminded of a book that I read recently from, I believe her name is Arlen Hamilton, um, all about where she said something about like privilege by itself isn't necessarily a problem. It's the entitlement that comes from it that can be. Um, and it's often that entitlement leads to less than great experiences um, professionally and personally. Um, and you, I guess where I'm kind of getting with this is you kind of mentioned before about the, about kind of like making sure that you're open to feedback and occasionally you do fall short. Do you maybe have an example of a time where you did fall short as a leader and how you respond to it and what kind of takeaways you got from it? Yeah, I, I have many examples of falling short, but the first one that comes into my mind is an interaction with a dear colleague where I jumped to a conclusion during a one-to-one -one conversation and something that was said during the conversation caught my ear in a way that was concerning to me, meaning I was, I was worried that something was happening that was going, you know, essentially it was interpersonal dynamics on that team. And I, I heard it as something being handled in a way that I was not comfortable with. And so I immediately jumped all over this person and said how that was not the right approach and it was not how we should move forward. And then I was very prescriptive in my guidance on how we should have handled the situation instead. And rightfully, this person that I was speaking with was upset and needed some time to collect their thoughts. And when we finally did, and, and, and you know, the only positive step I took in that interaction was I, I provided the space. We, we kind of agreed to not talk for a moment and, and, and regroup when tempers had cooled. Um, but when we reconnected, the real learning that I had was I jumped to a conclusion. This person was sharing, uh, they were they were speaking directly and, and a way that was not actually representative of you know, the words that they had exchanged with a colleague. So they were they were sharing basically a shorthand version of a conversation. And I heard it as as something other than what it actually was. And so instead of doing what I should have done as an emotionally intelligent person, which is ask for clarification, which is very simple, right? Could have asked a single question to clarify. I instead jumped into controlling, uh, you know, prescriptive sort of stereotypical bad boss persona, right? And we've all had those moments where we've been made to feel 
like we were not empowered to in our own careers to do better, to grow, to learn. We were just told instead how how badly we had gotten something wrong. And I, I just have never felt that making someone feel less than is ever the right solution to professional growth and development. The things that have really always helped me feel inspired are people who are able to, with empathy and with a lot of compassion, help me see the opportunity to do something differently. And um, when I fall short of that, I, I really do take it upon myself to try to be better, especially if you're in a senior leadership role. We we need to lead by example and treat people with kindness. You know, it's the stuff that we all learn in grade school, but it's so easy to forget in a work environment that um, it, it's humanity, it's, it's human decency. So in that instance and in several others, common denominator is not pausing to ask the question, jumping to a conclusion and being something less than empathetic and compassion, which usually leads to hurt feelings and people feeling trapped or, or made to feel less than. And, and I think we can all agree that's that's generally not the best path forward. Absolutely. Thanks so much for sharing that. And something else you kind of said a few minutes ago, which was making sure that was really stood out to me is I, I want to make sure that, you know, the team doesn't just look like me, but it's, you know, representative of, you know, what's going to be best for the entire team. Do you have any strategies, tactics, or even just thought experiments that kind of help you think about, you know, what your team dynamics and what your team structure and should look like so that it does feel like a very inclusive place for everyone? That's a great question. And I'd say it's it's also a work in pro- progress for me. And, you know, if anybody listens to this and has amazing ideas, please reach out. I'd love to hear what's working for others as well. Um, I'd say the thing that's been most useful for me is asking over and over for others to participate in decisions. So um, I'll, I'll talk about some stuff that's going to sound very tactical, but it's meaningful. We use uh, a project management tool called Rike. Um, you may have some experience with it. Mm-hmm. There, it's similar to, you know, all the other project management tools that are in the market. But it's it's super critical for our entire marketing team. We have, you know, more than fifty people that are managing work within a singular tool. So what's important about that is that if you come and join our team, chances are that you are going to be spending a sizable percentage of your day in Reich managing tasks. Uh, collaborating on approvals and feedback, et cetera. So from a leadership standpoint, that's super great, right? We have visibility into work and prioritization and assignments. But on a human level, I think we also have the potential risk that people are now leveraging a project management tool instead of forming actual relationships with one another. So I can I can count on luckily like one hand times where it's really come you know bitten us in terms of like causing an issue or or potentially you know making a a, a miscommunication you know something that was not handed off well between teams worse um, we're we're pretty good at course correcting but because of how significant it is in terms of impacting day to day like teaching people how to use the tool and also where the tool is not the right way to solve a problem, um, we just constantly check in. You know, most recently, just in the last couple of weeks, I asked my team to do, this is a very, very John Yarbrough style thing, which they probably felt was silly and, and unnecessary, but 
I created a survey and I sent it to every person on my team and I asked them to provide feedback specifically on our usage of Rike and I asked them pointed questions on to, you know, to grade our usage of Rike as an organization as it, you know, on, on a scale of one to 10 as it relates to how it either helps or hurts your productivity. Um, and, and that may seem like both a silly thing to do and maybe even a trivial thing to do, but you know, the exercise to me is important because it's providing a vehicle to raise your hand and say, hey, this is not working for me anymore. It is inhibiting my productivity. It's inhibiting my creativity. And if that were to show up on a survey, that then allows me to fix something that is meaningful for maybe it's even just one person on the team. But when, when we can take action on the things that our colleagues and our peers and our direct reports are telling us would make their day-to-day -day work lives better, uh, I think I think that's where you engender trust, right? That's where you engender, you know, people that, you know, are, are really in it with you because, you know, again, it's, it's not true for every organization. You know, there are places where you don't get a voice and tool selection or collaboration processes or meeting schedules. So, um, like I said, I, I just think it's important for no matter level of seniority or how long you've been with the company that you have a voice in the things that are going to impact your day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and before we wrap up, I always like to ask a couple of lightning round questions. Sure. Um, the first one is, what's one book that you'd recommend that any remote or hybrid reader should read? Radical Candor. It's a phenomenal book about delivering feedback and how to do it in an emotionally intelligent way that leads to real progress and positive outcomes. Love it. And on the flip side of that, if you had to write a book tomorrow, could be on anything, what would you write it about? How a failed film career has helped me find a passion for corporate storytelling. That is fascinating. Can you maybe give like a little teaser and like one of the biggest takeaways from that? Sure. It's actually not much to it. I, uh, have always been a, a great lover of film and cinema. I originally went to school in pursuit of a career. I wanted to write the next great screenplay. Um, a couple years into college, I realized that the people were actually writing the next great screenplay did not go to university for that often. Not always true, plenty do, but um, it, it was a, a real eye-opening experience that my love was really for stories of all types. And um, fortunately for me, I, I found a path into working and content communications. And I've, I've really loved the ride ever since. That is so cool. Um, and it's been really great chatting with you, John. Where can listeners find you online? I am on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter at jyarbrough. Um, would love to hear from anybody who wants to continue the conversation. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about Alert Media, you can also check out our podcast. We um, every week put out a podcast interview series with people that are uh, accountable for the safety of their employees. So you can check that out if you're interested at alertmedia.com forward slash podcast. Love it. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast, John. Thanks for having me. It was really great speaking with you. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.